0: Let's pray. Lord, we ask you to bless your word. We pray as we have finished worshiping you with the songs we sing that we would worship you with the honor that we give to the words that you have written down for us to hear and to grow, to receive power from, and to take deep into our hearts. And so we pray that your word would do that tonight, that it would go forth with power, that every heart here would be touched by what you have to say. We pray for your Holy Spirit to open up our minds, open up our hearts, and we pray above all else that you would be glorified. And It is in your name that we pray. Amen. So the book of James uh, is just—it's an incredible book. It, it's a phenomenal, just batch of exhortations and instructions. And if you're ever in a position in your Christian life where you're like, "I really don't know what the Lord wants me to do," read the book of James. You cannot read the book of James and walk away without knowing what the Lord wants you to do. Not necessarily that the Lord will uh, give you a specific answer for a specific question. But if you're like, I, I just don't know what to do in this phase of life. Well, you know what? The Lord will tell you in the book of James exactly what pure and undefiled religion looks like. The Lord will, the, the Lord will tell you how his, your relationship with him should drive your speech and your listening. It will tell you how it should give you discernment as to whether or not you're being selfish or not. And so the book of James, I think, I was listening to a pastor, uh, he said there's over 70 command verbs in the book of James. Do this, do this, do this. And it's, for that reason, uh, just incredibly practical, right? But it's important to understand, and we'll reiterate it through the book, but we'll, uh, it's worth just addressing it head on, and that is that some people teach and act and live as though, you have all of Paul's letters explaining one thing, and then the book of James explaining something contradictory. That Paul teachers were saved by grace alone, through faith alone, by the power of Jesus Christ alone. And James waltzes in with his book and says, no, 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 you're not saved by faith, you're saved by your works. And it's a, it's a challenge that the church has wrestled with for really a long time. Martin Luther, who was probably one of the men outside of the apostles and Paul uh, most used by the Lord for bringing back the the purity of the church, Martin Luther struggled with this. He really had a hard time kind of wrapping his head around the fact that the book of James was inspired by God because to him it felt contradictory to the rest of the Bible. But it's not contradictory, and that's what I want us to really understand before we dive into this. What James is going to do is James is going to present us with a paradox, okay, Paul, in all of his letters, and the author of Hebrews, whether it's Paul or whoever else, uh, the New Testament epistles are very clear that we are saved only by the grace of God. And there's a very strict warning in, the, in all of those epistles that if you get out of that, if you get out of being saved by grace, and you start trying to be saved by what you do, you have pulled yourself out from under the banner of Christ, and you're in very dangerous theological ground because now you're sliding into legalism. Well, what James is doing... As he's explaining the same truth from the other side, he says, You are saved by grace alone. But if you ever slide into thinking that that justifies whatever behavior you want, you're on very dangerous ground. You removed yourself from under the banner of Christ because you're sliding into what people call cheap grace. And it's important when we come to a truth like this in the scriptures, when we come to a paradox where you have two truths that at first glance seem contradictory but we know they're both in the Word of God, and so they're both true, and we're trying to understand how do we reconcile these. It's usually helpful to take them both to their full end, and what I mean by that is sometimes when we have two truths that make us a little bit uncomfortable in our minds because we can't quite reconcile it, we try and dilute it down on each side and give ourselves this medium ground, okay? And... That's frankly, I think, a bad handling of Scripture, a bad handling of what God has given us, and it's also dangerous theological territory. Because think of something like Jesus Christ, someone like Jesus Christ. Scripture tells us that he's fully human, completely man. He was tempted in every way as we are. It also tells us that he's fully God. He he is the Word of God. Jesus said, If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He said, I and the Father are one. He made full claim to deity. And we wrestle with that in our minds because we don't understand how a being could be 100% of two different things. And so in our mind, we say, well, maybe that means like he was 50% man and 50% God. Or maybe that means like he kind of like, you know, was God on Mondays, Wednesdays, Fridays, and man on like Tuesdays, Thursdays, Saturdays. And there's sort of this like, we, we try and, uh, because it makes us It's hard for us to reconcile. There's a temptation to say, I bet what it is, is it's less than it says. And that's very dangerous. Or think about uh, when we talk about the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. The scripture says very clearly that God is completely sovereign. He knows everything. He knows who is going to choose to follow him. He actually, we're told, chooses us to follow him. And we're also told that we are responsible for our own actions. That we can make a choice to follow God. And we can look at that and say, well, wait a second. So, does that mean that, you know, maybe God's like mostly in control, but I still have a little bit of say over certain things? And what we wind up doing, if we try and kind of squeeze everything into this middle territory, is we wind up reducing the power of God, the character of God, the integrity of God, the Word of God, and we wind up giving ourselves more and more excuses for sin. Because I'm not that responsible for my actions. I mean, God could stop me if he wanted to, you know. And and so where it's better to do, if you come to a paradox in scripture, is to actually embrace them both. And what you'll find is that they balance each other out perfectly if you accept them both as true. Okay, so don't in your mind say, well, Jesus is kind of God, kind of man. No, no. Jesus is fully God. He is God the Godhead bodily, if you understand Jesus Christ, you understand everything about God that God has, has, has seen fit to show to us. And Jesus is completely God, and he's also completely man. He wrestled with exhaustion in his earthly ministry. He wrestled with hunger. He wrestled with temptation. And so don't try and reduce those truths Accept them both and embrace them to their extremity. Is God, same deal with God's sovereignty and our responsibility? Is God sovereign? No. He's actually way more sovereign than you're capable of comprehending. Are you responsible for your actions? Yes. You're actually way more responsible than you would like to think you are. God does not just brush your sin under the rug, He takes it all very seriously. And so, what we're going to see as we get into the book of James is the same idea, okay, with, with the concept of we're saved by grace through faith, now what? Okay, and and Paul is emphasizing in his letters, now what is don't get into legalism. And what James is going to emphasize is don't get into cheap grace. Don't get into saying, oh, God loves me so I can do whatever I want. Okay, and so what we're doing here is we're looking at what God has revealed as truth And the purpose is to give us a more well-rounded understanding of how the grace of God should change our lives. Okay? So that's where we start off. Chapter 1, verse 1. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. To the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. Now, right out of the gate, uh, church history has held pretty much ever since this book was written. that This book is authored by James, the half-brother of Jesus Christ. He would have been the son of Joseph and Mary and in the physical union that they had in their marriage. But notice how he introduces himself, a bondservant of God. Now, if I was the half-brother of God, how long do you think you would have to know me before you found out about that fact, right? Like, hi, my name is Nate. I happen to be half-brother of God. I also do this for a living, and here's, you know, here's my family status. But did I mention I was half-brother of God? Yeah, I'm, I'm actually like... Kind of an awesome status because of that. No pressure. Yeah, we had the same mom. Can you believe that? The same woman that spanked me. She never, I don't know if she ever spanked him because he might have gotten falsely accused and and I don't know, a little too theoretical. But anyways, James just holds himself up as, I'm a bond servant of God. I'm a servant of God. James doesn't write this letter and say, okay, I've got all this authority because I'm a church leader. He says, you know, I'm just a servant of God. I'm writing this letter. And he's writing it from a position of humility. In verse 2, he says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And so he tells us, count it joy when you fall into trials. And um, we'll emphasize that when we get a little further down, but right now he's talking about trials as in the sense of hard things that come to life. Okay, The world is full of hard things. And sometimes the Lord allows those things to test our faith. But it's important when we say that our faith is being tested. It's not like God is trying to get an assessment of where we're at. right? God is not a teacher who wants to figure out how well the students have been learning, and so he's going to hand out a test and know does he need to modify the curriculum. God knows exactly where we're at in our growth. The testing is really for us. When your faith is tested, you realize, wow, I am way more of a loser than I thought. I have way less faith than I thought. I am way more selfish than I thought. Way more petty than I thought. The testing of our faith is uh, sort of an understanding that when hard things come into our life, the Lord is using them. Okay? That does not mean that he causes all of them. All right? it, um, but it's important to understand that hard times will come into life and the Lord allows them in part because he wants to teach us things. He wants to grow us. If life was always easy, we would never grow. Everything we understand about growth on earth comes from pain. You want to grow muscle? What are you going to do? You're going to pick up heavy things and put them back down. And you're going to do it again, right? You want to grow resistance or endurance? What are you going to do? You're going to run until you can't breathe anymore, and then you're going to do it again. You want to grow character? You're going to handle hard times until you think you can't handle it anymore, and then you do it again. It's the same principle. Everything we understand about exercise and, and, and building something is through pain. And so the Lord will allow pain in your life. He does not promise us that once you follow Jesus Christ, everything's gonna be perfect. No, because he wants to grow you. He wants to see you progress and get deeper and deeper in your relationship with him. So that testing will produce patience where we say, wow, God is, God is working. God is doing something. He's teaching me how badly I need to not rely on myself and how desperately I need to rely on him. Verse 5, he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, so if you're going through a trial and you're having a hard time understanding why, or if you're just, in general, lacking wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. This is an incredible promise from the Lord. Because the Lord says, if you lack wisdom, ask, and I will give it to you. He does not say, I might. He does not say, I probably will, or I probably won't. He says, if you lack wisdom, ask for it, and it will be given to you. Now, that's an incredible promise, because... I need wisdom. I need wisdom every day. Every time I come up with a decision, you know, I can think, oh, it's obvious. But have you ever made a decision that you thought was obvious and you realized very quickly after was not quite as obvious as you thought it was, right? Oh, this makes perfect sense. And you go, oh, no, that did not make perfect sense, right? Um, We need wisdom. We are foolish people. And the Lord says, if you need wisdom, ask me for it, and I will give it to you. But he does, he does qualify. it. He says, but ask in faith without doubting. Now, this isn't, you know, we talked about in Hebrews, faith does not necessarily equate to confidence. Faith equates to obedience. And he's not contradicting that here. But the, uh, the principle is, if you're going to ask the Lord for wisdom, then the Lord is going to give you wisdom. It's going to be the Lord's Wisdom. Right, you're asking for God's input because you don't understand the situation. And so when he reveals the answer, you may not still understand the situation. But once you've asked for the wisdom of God, don't then say, oh, yeah, but I bet that isn't actually the wisdom of God. And we do this sometimes, right? We ask God to give us clarity. And then he gives us clarity and we say, no, no, I wanted a different kind of clarity. Right, well, Lord, would you make it obvious? And he makes it obvious. And we say, you know, I was kind of hoping for something a little more nuanced than that. And he's making a point You know, if you tell the Lord, Lord, I'll do whatever you tell me, my life is yours. And he says, great, do this. We say, you know, I thought I heard the Lord say do this, but that must have been the devil tempting me. He's saying, look, if you're asking for wisdom, be prepared. It's kind of a dangerous thing to ask for wisdom because the Lord will give it, but he then expects you to walk in it. So if you're gonna ask for wisdom, be prepared to obey, and be prepared to obey even if you don't understand. Verse nine. And James is he's going, you know, the book of Hebrews, we talked about it, it's it's sort of that Eastern culture. You got the central hub of Jesus is better, and everything else is pinballing all around. James is just a man with a with a PowerPoint slide and, and he's dropping bullet notes, right? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Every once so in a long go back, six, seven, eight, in case you missed it. But James is just gonna. Shoot out. So if you're feeling like, wow, James is just jumping all over the map, he is. But that's okay. Verse 9. Now that we've talked about trials and wisdom, let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation. Because as a flower of the field, he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with the burning heat than it withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. He says, if you're a poor person, rejoice in everything that you have. If you're a rich person, rejoice in everything you don't have. It's kind of an interesting concept because the principle he's establishing is what do you rich and poor both have? You both have Christ. If, you're, if you believe in Christ, it does not matter what your economic status is, you have Jesus Christ. And that is honor enough to make any poor person exalted. And it is also simple enough to humble any rich person, any proud person. Right? And so he's, he's saying, hey, look, if you're poor, and, you're st- and find the joy in life. If you're rich, find the sobriety. If you're poor, go to weddings a lot. If you're rich, go to funerals a lot. And understand what life really offers. What life offers is Christ. If you're rich, there's nothing wrong with that inherently in Scripture. It's risky. It's dangerous. But there's nothing wrong with being wealthy. But you do understand it's going to be gone. right? Like, like It's sort of this fact of life that you die... And your money does not go with you. And yet we delude ourselves sometimes into thinking that that's somehow not the case. But rich people just, they come and go, right? I mean, who's, you know, right now Elon Musk is the richest man on earth, I think. Um, But whatever, who was the richest man in 1975? I have no idea. You go back a little farther than that, somewhere in the line it was Norman Rockefeller, but I couldn't tell you anything about him other than that he was bald and he owned an oil company. Couldn't tell you what he likes to eat. Couldn't tell you the name of his wife. Could, I can could tell you he lives in New York. And, uh, yeah, that's that's about that's about it. Right? But he was the richest man on earth. He was one of the most powerful men in the world. And you know what he is now? He's dead. You know where his money is now? It's split up. Other rich people took it. Right? Being rich. And, and we can say, yeah, yeah, those boy, those rich people, they really ought to be more humble. Well, you know, we're sitting in an air conditioned or heated room tonight. We just ate a full meal. By any standard across all of human history, we're the rich people. So don't don't get caught up in pursuits. You say, Oh no, I'm just trying to get from, you know, twenty to twenty five an hour. No, no, don't get caught up in rich pursuits. Don't get caught up in the pursuit of money. I'm not saying it's wrong, but I'm saying it is wrong if that becomes your pursuit. The rich man will also fade away in his pursuits, James says. So set your goals. Set your priorities. Make sure that what you are pursuing after is something that will last longer than your life here on earth. Verse 12, blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when, sin is con- when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. So here he's talking about temptations. And that's different than trials. Trials are hardships that come in life. Temptations are the desire or the enticement to actually commit evil, to walk in sin. Okay? So he says, blessed are you if you endure. Now, Scripture is interesting on the subject of temptation because Scripture does not teach that our goal is to get beyond temptation. Our goal is not to reach this magical state of enlightenment on earth where we're just never tempted anymore. That's not what Scripture teaches. In fact, we're told that Jesus was tempted in every way as we are. So being tempted is not a sin. Giving into temptation is a sin. And there's a blessing in store for those who endure past the point of temptation. And it's a, re- it's a reality of life that very often when the enemy tries to tempt us, when Satan tries to tempt us, he, kinda, he, he knows us very well. He finds something that we're vulnerable in and he just hits us. And he just hits us there for, seems like forever. And you can just get stuck in a rut of, man, you keep stumbling over the same sin. But sometimes we say, okay, God, I really want to move past. So I'm going to bring people into my life to help me be accountable. I'm going to remove the opportunity to sin. I'm going to replace, you know, these things that are enticing me to sin with things of God. And usually Satan will keep tempting us in that area for a little while, and you have to push past, and then he'll just switch gears. He'll find something else to tempt you with. But there's a blessing in a moving into victory over a certain area of sin. All right? But understand, James is really emphatic here, don't blame your sin on God. In the same vein that you don't want to swing to God's sovereignty at the exclusion of man's responsibility, don't ever say, you know, well, it's God's fault that I'm sinning. And, and you can say, well, that's stupid, but you know what? That's actually a popular thing right now. Uh, the, 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 the Calvinistic movement in the United States has bred a lot of hidden sin and a lot of guilt and shame, but people who say, you know what? I'm addicted to porn because God made me this way. I, I am walking in this sin because God made me this way. If God's, God's the sovereign. He could stop me. And it, and it destroys people because they say, no, God, it's God's fault. And so, therefore, I'm just, I'm just a victim here. And James says, don't you ever say that. Don't you dare say that. God does not tempt you to sin. We are tempted when we're drawn away by our own desires and enticed. Do you know why you sin? Because you're a sinner. Same reason I sin. The reason we sin is because we are... We have evil hearts that desire sinful things. Don't put that on God. Right? James, and it's the same deal. It's, it's the paradox. James is making sure we understand. Do not, do not despise your responsibility. Do not say, oh, wow, well, this is God's fault. Because it's not. God cannot be tempted by sin. He does not tempt others by sin. Verse 16, he says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. So, God does not bring bad things. God does not bring evil desires into our heart. God brings good gifts. And with Him, there is no variation, there's no shadow, there's no turning. And God's character is established and it is fixed, it does not change. And so, the good gifts that God brings. He doesn't, like, swap them out. You know, God is not playing, like, you know, the game where you have 20 sugar cookies and one salt cookie. God doesn't do that with you. God is, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he's a giver of good gifts. Don't put temptations on God. Don't blame God for bad things that are caused by your sinfulness and your desire sin and your stupidity. Recognize that God is actually the giver of good gifts. Verse 18 of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. If you're thinking about the good gifts that God has given you, it's helpful sometimes to back up and just start trying to go through them in your mind. What has God given me? Okay, and James, is, if you, to get you started, he gives you the first one. That is so obvious, we almost all miss it. And that is that God gave you the gift of existence. Right? Let I me mean, think about this. What right do you have to exist. Why why on earth should God have have given you a life? Why should He have united your soul, and your mind, and your body into who you are? Like He's not under obligation to do it. You wouldn't have known if He hadn't. Right? But He gives you the gift of existence so you can actually know Him in a conscious and, and tangible way of His own will. He brought us forth. God... Gave us existence because it's a good gift. So just start from there. What has God given you while well, you're alive? That's a good start. That's more than you can say for the rocks. Right? He made the rocks too, but he made you different. You are alive. You're different than the animals. You're different than the trees. You have an eternal soul that will endure forever. That's a gift. And so if you're understanding, don't, don't pin your sinfulness on God. Go back, understand what he's done, and let that drive gratitude in your heart. So then, verse 19, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So then, he says, okay, you're going to have trials. Count that as joy. You're going to lack wisdom. Ask God for it. Don't get cocky if you're rich. Don't be too depressed if you're poor. Endure temptation. Understand the good gifts that God gives you. And therefore, if you understand the good things God has given you, be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. The mark of a mature believer who walks with the Lord is that they are willing to listen, they do not have to talk, and they do not lose their self-control. Now those are pretty simple things in their own way until you try and do them on your own strength. Right? I mean, you can conceptually, you know, like, oh, yeah, God gave me two ears and one mouth. That means I should listen twice as much as I talk. Have you ever tried to listen twice as much as you talk? Like, that's a serious pain, right? Like, because you have something really profound to say, right? I'm like, I'd be happy to listen to you, but if you could just shut up, you could capture my brilliance and then think of how much better we'd both be, right? And we're like, just... Man, like we have so much to offer the world. And, and James says, hey, because God is good, because of God's goodness, because every good gift is from God, that should drive your conduct, that should drive your conversations, that should drive your interactions, that should drive the peace in your heart. You should be slow to wrath because the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. If you want to endure temptation, you're going to have to learn to listen. Listen to the Lord. Listen to the wisdom of people around you. You're going to need to not interrupt him and say, no, 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 it's it's not that. It's just that, or I would do that, but you don't need to make excuses. You don't need to blow up. You just need to listen. Receive, because God is good and he gives good gifts. Verse 21, therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Again, he's tying it back. God has given us every good gift. Every good thing is from God. Therefore, you should lay aside all filthiness and the overflow of wickedness. The wickedness that just keeps bubbling up out of your heart, it's time to lay it aside. Why? Because God is giving you every good gift and he wants you to be able to experience every good gift. And if you let wickedness continue to bubble up in your heart, if you let bitterness, you let sin, you let fornication, whatever, whatever it is, you let it bubble up in your heart and you know what you're going to do? You're going to fill up all your space, all your mental space, all your energy, all your time. And all of a sudden, I don't know what kind of gifts God's giving me because I'm just too busy meditating on all this overflow of wickedness in my heart. Verse 22, he says, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. Now this is important. James is going to emphasize this a couple more times in the book, but here's the the main summary of the book. Live out what you say. Be doers of the word of God, not hearers only. Anybody can sit and listen to a teaching. Anybody can say, oh wow, that was really great. You're right, we should love our neighbors more. You're right, we should tithe more. You're right, we should pray more. You're right, we should be more considerate. You're right, we should be more servant-hearted. But to do it, that's another thing and james is calling us to live lives of action but he specifies and this is really important he specifies that it's according to the law of liberty he looks into the perfect law of liberty he's going to quote it again in chapter 2 and james is calling us to good works because we are already free because we are already saved, because we have already experienced grace. And that is critical, because Paul and James are both making the same point. Paul's point is that you are saved by grace. There is nothing you can do to bring you to the point of salvation. And James's point is, you have been saved by grace. Therefore, there are a lot of things you should do after that fact. To continue steadfastly in the fellowship and in the power that God is offering you. To walk in victory. To not get caught up in sin. Because you're saved, there are things you should do. Paul's emphasis is there's nothing you can do to be saved. And James's point is now because you are saved. Because of the law of liberty. And this is important. Because again, there are people who live and teach that James is somehow contradictory to the letters of Paul. It's not contradictory. They're making the exact same point from two separate angles. Okay, but James is saying because you are setting, you're, because you're according to the law of liberty, that should drive your actions. Liberty drives behavior, freedom impacts your choices. And James is going to make the point that free people have to do certain things in order to stay free. This is the principle of, of, of government. Okay, that we sometimes struggle to understand, and that is that the fact that you are free to do whatever you want, if you want to preserve the freedom to do whatever you want, there are some things you need to make sure you never do, right? There are some freedoms you have that you need to not exercise if you want to stay free. That's true in government, and that's true in our walk with the Lord. The Lord says, hey, you are free. Where sin abounds, grace abounds. My grace is beyond what you can comprehend. And so the response for some people is, sweet, sweet do whatever I want, still get grace. And God says, no, no, you do that, and you, all you're doing is proving that you have no idea what grace actually is. And so that means that you actually haven't received grace. Okay? So he says, verse 26, if anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. James, he's, he's making a point but he's really very careful to make sure we, to try and make sure we don't misunderstand his point. He's saying, hey, you've got to be doers of the word of God. But by the way, religious people are a pain. And he's like, you are, you are not called to be religious people. You're called to be people who are responding to grace. If you think you're religious and you don't know how to shut up, you don't bridle your tongue, your religion is useless. A Christian who can't shut up, James is saying, is, is a miserable to be around. It's kind of profound, right? Like, we don't like to think of it in super stark terms like that. James is saying, don't talk too much. Huh. I feel like I should say something profound right now, but I don't think that would be a very wise choice. Verse 27, pure and undefiled religion in the, before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. And those two points really go together. He's saying religion is not in what you can say. Right? I don't care, honestly. And I want to be careful how I say this. I really don't care about your theology. I really don't. You know, there are people who I know who, man, we, we could check every single box. Like, you believe this, so do I. You believe this, so do I. You believe this, so do I. You believe this little nuanced take on prophecy, so do I. But, man, I would hate to do any actual ministry with them. Because they might know all the facts but they have no idea what it's like to live out the character of God. And there are other people I know who, gosh dang it, make me nervous, right? Like, I don't believe that, and I don't think that. And I think that's a little bit of a risky doctrinal stance to take. But I tell you what, we want to go tell people that Jesus Christ loves them, and you're the man, right? Like, let's do this. Because God doesn't care about your theology. Now, he does in the sense that he expects you to be growing in your relationship with him. He expects you to be in the word of God. He expects you to be continuing in fellowship with him, and as you do that, you should be growing in truth. Okay? But you do understand, like, the most profound Christian on earth has a very limited understanding of the character of God. Like, I, I know that I do not have every doctrinal stance perfectly aligned. Right? I know that when I get to heaven, there will be things where I say, oh, that's what you meant. <laughs> sorry. Um, I fully expect there to be a point where I realize that certain things I believe now are not, are not the case. Now, the basics are absolutely true. I'll, I'll die on those, right? Jesus Christ came to save sinners of whom I am chief. Yeah, that one's not changing. But whether, you know whether that temple in the end of Ezekiel is in the Millennial Kingdom or in the New Jerusalem, honestly doesn't, isn't really going to have that big of an impact. And so if you want to hold a stance on something like that, God bless you. But James is making a point. Religion, knowing all the right things, reading all the right books, knowing all the right pastors, knowing who's, who's good and who's bad and who's the, who's the right teacher and who's the wrong teacher, I'm not saying those things are bad. Okay, it's good to be aware if someone is teaching something false and be able to stay away from them. But at the end of the day, do you understand the heart of Christ for people? Do you understand that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners? He didn't come into the world to make theologians. He came into the world to save sinners. His goal is to find lost people and make them found people. And along the way, yes, there are important questions there are important questions about a lot of things, like baptism and communion and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Okay, but what matters is that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And James says, "So pure and undefiled religion." Okay, if you're if you're just like you get all your you get all your theological ducks in the row, but in a row, but you're not living it out. You know what you should do? Find widows and orphans who need help. Take care of them. Find people who need help, who need protection. Serve them. Understand the heart of God for the vulnerable. And that will drive. That will change your perspective. You find vulnerable people and you protect them. You serve them. And and, and you you become a part of their life. And that is, God says, that's undefiled religion. You want to know what my perfect doctrine is? Right? Perfect doctrine is not understanding uh, every nuance of Charles Spurgeon's teachings. Perfect doctrine is Can you just live out the gospel? Chapter 2, verse 1. We're going to run late tonight, but that's cool. My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes, and say to him, hey, you sit here in a good place, and say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Super practical. James doesn't waste too much time on theoreticals. When people come to church, make sure you're not just nice to the nice-looking people, right? And that's practical because sometimes people come into a church and they don't look super nice, right? We, I mean, that's just, that's just a fact of life. Sometimes people come who have had a very hard background. They may be mentally challenged. There's, there's stuff going on. And you're like, that person is somewhere in between different than me, a little bit off, and a little bit creepy, Okay, and then there's people come in, and man, they know the words to the songs, they know that it's like kind of casual, which means like button up instead of button down, and they like, you know, they're kind of, you know, they've been to, you know, they've been to this church, and you're like, man, I just like that guy. They listen to the same podcast you do, you know, like, yeah, we're, we're, we're jiving, you know, like we just, we've got a connection, you know, I feel like the Lord really is building our relationship. And he's like, you know what, be nice to the poor guy, okay? Be nice to the bum who comes into church. That, that's really what he's saying here, okay? Be, be practical. Jesus Christ does not believe in favorites. So when you're in church, you're part of the ministry team of this church. We are, we are part of the welcoming committee of the family of God. When people come into this church, they should experience the love of God. And we are that connection point for them. We are Jesus Christ's ambassadors. And Jesus is not here to save rich people. He's not here to save nice people. He's not here to save Republicans. He's not here to save white people. He's not here, he is here to save human beings who have eternal souls, and he does not care what the externals look like. And James is making a point that you're stepping into the role of God if you start making character assessments based on the externals of a person. If you you start making judgment calls about what a person is on the inside based on what they are on the outside, you're stepping into the role of God. James says, don't you dare. Listen, verse five. My beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? but you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? He says, in case you're struggling to understand this, let me point out that if you go back and look at the history of faithful Christians, you go back and look at the role models and the inspirations of people who have impacted the church long-term for the glory of God, the vast majority of them are poor. James is just making a point. Oftentimes, actually, counter to what we're tempted to think, poor people tend to have a more natural grasp on who God is. Why? Because they can't just trust in themselves. Right? And he says, oh, and by the way, pretty much all your problems in life come from rich people anyways. Like, why would you be nice to them to start with? He's like, they are the problem. Um, he's like, I'm just making a point here. Like, who takes your tax money? Rich guys. Right? Who, who does everything that you don't like, that you complain about in the government? Rich people. Who does, like, just everything? All, all the problems in the world are from rich people. Now, I have nothing against rich people. I support capitalism very much. But James is making a point here. Don't assume character qualities on people and actually understand that generally, if you assume rich people are nice and poor people are bad, you're wrong anyways. Verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak, and so do, as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is super helpful because James says, okay, if you have been showing partiality, If you have been failing in this, understand something. That's sin. James doesn't beat around the bush. You commit sin. So you know what you need to do if you commit sin? You need to repent, and you need to stop committing that sin. You're convicted by the law as transgressors, and now he gives a warning. He says, if you keep the whole law and stumble in one point, you're guilty of the whole thing. The law gives very specific commands, and he says, you mess up on one of them, you might as well have broken the whole thing. Because the Lord's holiness is not on a sliding scale. It's perfect. And perfect holiness, you know, if you take something that's perfectly white and you put one drop of gray on it, it's no longer white. Perfect white can't have any dark on it. Perfect holiness can't have any sin. Not most sin. Can't have any sin. And so he says, look, if you're sinning, repent. But understand, if you're sinning and you're walking in in religious legalism because you think you're awesome, uh, you're in serious theological danger. You're in serious shaky ground, morally speaking, because if you keep everything perfectly except for one stupid little detail, you, you, you screwed up the whole thing. So he says, So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. Again, James goes back to here, he says, okay, you want to live like you're going to be judged by grace. And that means that if you are in sin, you need to repent. Not so that you can earn grace, but because you have been given grace, you need to do it. Because, here's the deal, if you step, if, you, if you're putting your hope in something else, in your own religious works, then what he's going to, he's going to kind of go, on here just a bit now what you're really saying is it's not that oh you're using up too much grace It's that you're proving that you have no idea what grace actually is verse 14 what does it profit my brethren if someone says he has faith but does not have works can faith save him if a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food and one of you says to them depart in peace be warmed and be filled god bless you brother but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body what does it profit you say you have faith, but it has no works. And James is making a point that anybody can say they have faith. Anybody can tell me they believe in God. Anybody can, can, you know, check all the boxes, right? But how do I know if we're actually talking about the same thing? Think about it this way. Let's say I tell you, man, I just love driving. I think driving is just, I mean, you just, you know. It's the most exhilarating experience in the world. You just feel so alive when you're, when you're driving a car. And you say, you know what? I just bought this awesome sports car. You want to go for a ride? I say, yes, I would love to. And you pull it out of the garage, right? Your 1974 navy blue Mercedes convertible. And I say, that's not a car. You say, yes, it is. I say, no, it's not. A car has two wings, and it's got a cockpit, and it's got the joystick, and you take up down that long asphalt thing, and you get to about 12,000 feet if it's a small car, and about 30,000 feet if it's a big car. What am I talking about? you think I'm talking about an airplane, but I think I'm talking about a car, right? And, and, and if we're not careful, you know, I could use almost all the same phrases. I'd say, you know, I had to pump up the tire on my car the other day. Or, you know, it ran out of fuel. Or I had to change the oil, right? Or the frame got bent a little bit, you know? Or, you know, the seatbelt belt was, was wearing, rubbing me funny on my neck. And we could have a whole conversation and think that we're both talking about a car until all of a sudden we look at a car... And one of us is talking about something totally different. right? I said I love driving a car. But I have no idea what a car actually is, evidently. right? I'm slightly psychotic, which, if you know me, is highly possible. Um, but, but you understand that anybody can say they believe. James is making a point. If you don't live it out, then what you're demonstrating is you don't know what you're talking about. If the grace of God is not changing your behavior, then you don't know what the grace of God is. And so when someone says, oh, you know, I can do this, but Jesus still loves me, that's not the question, right? That's a broken metaphor, it's a broken understanding. The question is not, hey, since Jesus saved me, what can I do? The question is, wow, since Jesus died for me, since there was a break in our fellowship and he repaired it, what can I do to... Continuing that, what can I do to to be more aware, to be more in tune with a God who would love me that much? Wow, I'm a sinner, I'm a wicked person, and God decided God wanted to save me. What can I do to not try to abuse that gift? Right, if you, you know, if you uh, if you told me, "Wow, I'm just super happily married." And I said, wow, that's great. You said, yeah. My wife and I, she lives in Hanover. I live in Madison. And we get together on Sunday mornings and uh, go out for lunch. Uh, You know, go out for coffee and lunch. It's a great marriage. I would say, wait a second. I met a guy like this once, actually, which was kind of awkward. Um, I think they did the full weekend instead of just Sundays. But it was kind of like, I have no idea what to say right now. But anyways, you could tell me that and tell me you're happily married. And I'd be like, I don't think you know what happily married is. I don't know what happily married is because I'm not married, but I'm pretty sure from everything I've gathered, all my sources of data, there's an implication that if you really like the person you're married to, you sort of like being around the person, right? You're not usually happily married and avoiding your spouse at the same time, right? That's sort of contradictory. So if I have fellowship with the Lord, I say, oh man, I love the Lord. God's been so good to me. Yeah, I'm going to like blow him off and sort of just come back when I feel like it. Then wait a second. Then you don't love the Lord. And that's the point James is making. Is that if you're abusing grace and saying, oh no, God loves me. God forgives my sins. You know, hey, the grace of God has covered all my sins. That's a true statement. Okay, Paul explains in Romans. The grace of God. God has given us a gift. To say, if you will believe me, if you believe that what Jesus Christ did is sufficient to make you righteous, it will make you righteous. And you can become righteous by no act of your own. We say, sweet, that is awesome. I'm super stoked about that gift. He says, yeah, okay, now, how is it going to change your life? Because that's a pretty big gift, right? And so that's the point James is making. If you say, "Wow, what a great gift! Excuse me while I go blow it off or throw it in the trash," then you don't know what the gift is and so when people say, "Oh, I just you know I'm walking in grace, but they're abusing grace they're they 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 have this idea that like it's it, you know it was free so I can use as much as I want they they're misunderstanding it because it's grace grace is a free gift to you that does not mean it has no value, right It's like you know you see you know, Memorial Day, Fourth of July, whatever, you always, you always see, you know, freedom isn't free, right? That's very true. There's a cost that somebody has to pay so that we can have freedom. And that's true of the grace of God. Oh, It's a free gift, but it wasn't free, right? Jesus Christ uh, s- suffocating on a cross for hours saying, God, why have you forsaken me? That wasn't free, right? That cost him something, and it is, not, it, is not, it is a failure to understand what he did if we say, wow, thanks for dying. Thanks for enduring the agony of hell that I deserved. Now excuse me while I go look at pornography. Excuse me while I go nurse my little bitterness. Excuse me while I go just blow you off and do whatever I want. James says, if you think that that's what grace is, all you're doing is demonstrating that you do not know what." you are talking about. So verse 18, we'll kind of wrap up this chunk. He says, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Hey, he teaches them. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe there's one God? Hey, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. He says, look, you check the boxes? Oh, good for you. I don't care. James, James is a little snarky, which I can roll with. Um, he says, oh, wow, you believe in God? Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. He says, okay, look, you want to try and blow this off? Let me just make a couple points here. And he goes back to the Old Testament. And he says, okay, look, we're told in Genesis that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Paul uses the same verse to point out that Abraham is saved by faith. And that's true. Abraham isn't saved at that point by anything he's done. But James says, when do we really know that Abraham believed God? Because we watch his actions and sometimes, you know, he gets a little squirrely. He's not saved by his works because he messes up a little bit, you know, he fathers a child with another woman, and that's not really great, it's kind of problematic. And there's there's some dicey things in there. But when do we know that Abraham believed God? When God said, Hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you a son, and in him all the nations of the world will be blessed. When God says, Hey, I want you to offer your son Isaac as a sacrifice. And Abraham, we're told, gets up, packs up the donkey, gets the firewood, takes Isaac, and they go. They go on a trip, they hike for three days. And Abraham's there with Isaac and two other servants, and Abraham says, You guys stay here. Me and Isaac are gonna go up the hill, offer a sacrifice to God, and we're gonna come back down. And he says, We. He has he has he has confidence, he is not of understanding. Right? He's walking in obedience without comprehension. He has confidence that God is going to do something. He does not know what. But God told him to do something. And so he's going to keep doing it until God gives him the next step. And so God said, offer your son as a sacrifice. So he ties up his son, lays him on the altar, and he's about ready to sacrifice his son with the full confidence that God will do something. With the confidence that whether God's going to raise him back from the dead or do something, he knows God has said, Isaac is the one. It is not Ishmael; it is Isaac. And he says, "You know what? I believe that God is going to do what He said. And so God can tell me to do something that does not make sense, and that's irrelevant. My understanding is beside the point because God called me to obedience, and I believe God. And so he's making. A, so James is just making this point. We know Abraham had faith. We know he's justified by his faith, but we we get to see his faith demonstrated." when he lives it out. Because anybody can say, I believe God, but what do you do with it? Right? And so it's important as we, as we read James, again, you've got to keep in mind, James is not, he is, is, is not arguing that you're somehow saved or justified in the sight of God by doing good things. But what he is emphatically saying is because you are saved, because the grace of God has reached down because the good gift of God, because the ultimate gift, Jesus Christ, came and, and offered us salvation. Because of that, it should drive a response. Because we're free, we should act like free people. right? Free people should not walk around in handcuffs. You shouldn't be bound to your sin because you're free. You do not need to walk in bondage. James's point is that. That you have been set free, so act like it. Right? Freedom is a glorious privilege. And, and too many Christians waste huge chunks of their lives walking around in all kinds of bondage. Either legalism and religion, which James is warning us against, or sin, which James is warning against. And James is just saying, you know what? Know Jesus Christ. And, and let the actions of your life demonstrate that you know who he is. So Lord, we thank you. Thank you for the example of Christ. Thank you for the salvation that he offers us, that we can know that we are sinners, but you are a good God, and that you have saved us. And Lord, we pray that as, as that truth grows in prominence in our hearts, as we understand more and more what it means that you would love us, understand the depths that you went to save us, that that would change how we live our lives. It would change our desires. It would change what we think are our needs. It would change our attitudes. That we would be people who want to just respond to what you have offered us. Who want to stay free because we have been set free. And so Lord, we thank you for the gift of salvation that we can be saved from what we were. We can be saved from the judgment that we deserved. We thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you that he died on the cross and that he did not stay dead. And he rose to life to prove that we also can raise to life spiritually. And so we pray that these words would impact our hearts, that you would draw us close to you, and that we would live as free people. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our King, that we pray. Amen.